John chapter 1. And while you're opening that, let me, let me just sort of invite you into the feel of this message. And I'm going to do it through, well, two different ways. So one of them, let me ask you, how many of you, because I don't take this for granted, how many of you really, truly, and I mean sincerely, love the season of Christmas? Now, I'm going to ask you the opposite of that, and if you feel brave enough to answer that, if you're in the opposing crowd, how many of you really don't enjoy the season of Christmas? Raise your hand. And I've met a lot of people that are in that crowd as well. And so there's something about Christmas that really seems to grab the hearts of many, and there's something that sort of sours some as well. Could be the the, uh, the overemphasis on shopping could be the overemphasis on things that take your, your mind away from Christ. Whatever the reason, there's just some people, some of them find this to be the loneliest time of the year. And so we're very aware of that as well. But one of the greatest seasons in my life has always been the season of Christmas. I just love this time of the year. I love the Days that are a little bit cold, you got that crispness in the air, at least I think we will in about another week. They feel, you know, you can smell snow coming in New York, where I'm from, central New York. You can smell it and you can feel it coming. You can certainly see it coming in the clouds before it actually begins to drop. I mean, it's so exciting for me when it snows a lot. I love shoveling it. I love playing out in it. I love jumping off the roof of our house into it. I've always loved snow. I don't know what it is or something about snow that I absolutely love. I love the, the smell and the sound and the sight of our wood stove blazing away. I cut a lot of wood every year. I probably cut and split and stack about 14 to 15 cord of wood. I just love to do this. It's one of the greatest stress relievers for me. So I love putting it in that stove and it is blazing away right now this time of the year. But I got to tell you, one of my favorite memories, and there's a lot of them, this time of the year, happened two years ago. It was, I think, the day or two before Christmas. It was in the evening. I still remember it was a Tuesday evening. And I went out for a bicycle ride. I ride a lot of bicycle, and I love night rides. And this was one of those really balmy evenings. It was in the 50s, and there was a fog everywhere. I don't know if anybody else is remembering this, but for me, it really sticks out because I'm out riding in this. And I'm riding my bicycle, and this time of the year, of course, there are homes and there are yards that are entirely lit up with Christmas lights and festive decorations, but yet there's fog shrouding everything. And I remember very, very poignantly cycling, pedaling my way around Nazareth, around Palmer, and you could see the lights, this sort of nimbus glow in the fog before you could even see anything. And as you pedaled more, and as I pedaled and got closer to these homes, all of a sudden, they began to appear, and they began to be distinguishable, and I could begin to see all of the lawn direct, direct, uh, decorations and all of the lights. It was just an eerie, beautiful night for me. It just was allowing me to really enjoy biking, but really to have my thoughts and my mind on Jesus Christ. 
And in fact, I began to think about Jesus, who is the light of the world. And we're going to be looking this entire month at Jesus, the light who has come. That's the Advent series title. And we're going to be entirely in the writings of the, of the Apostle John. And if you've got your Bibles open to John chapter 1, you're really going to need to be in here. Remember, I've only given you one layer of the context. I'm going to give you the second one in a moment. If you've got your Bibles open, let's look at this. Just the first few words. In the beginning was the Word. Now, I'm going to really unpack for you. It's going to be extraordinarily difficult for me because we're going to look at 14 verses. I really just want to do one but we've got to get some mileage. But let me give you that second contextual preparation for you. Are you ready? Now look at, I want everybody to look at me for a moment. This is utterly important. You hear what I'm going to tell you. This is going to be a very, very meaty sermon. Now, I just saw when I said that, somebody yawning. So I'm like, oh no, you're already beginning to doze. I don't think you're going to do that. I'm hoping to make it importantly and, and interestingly good for you to be able to get this sermon in your mind and in your heart. But I really want to prepare you. This is incredibly important. This is, I think, perhaps the loftiest theological passage in the Bible, or at least it ranks up there, in my view, top three. This is amazingly complex. It's amazingly critical. And I want to prepare you for that. So I want you to really grab your mind. You can do this, and I can do this. You have the responsibility to do this. Grab your mind and think through this message. And do more than just think. Start to get it down in your heart by the power of the Spirit of God. And I'm going to end this message with a way that this could be relevant to you. So let's really learn what John is saying in chapter 1. He is super clear about why he wrote his gospel. I'm going to take you to near the end of the book. You can see it on the screen. He said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is plainly, clearly, actually more clear than I think any other book in the Bible about its intended purpose. He wants you and he wants me to believe in Jesus so that we can have life. So he wrote it as a witness. He's writing a legal argument, and he is going to be incredibly convincing and persuasive. Why Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, which is what that, that word means. Christ, by the way, this might actually be a little bit of a new thing for a lot of us. Christ is not his last name. It's not Jesus Christ, first and last name. It's Jesus the Christ. It's a title, and it simply means the anointed one. So we've got in the Gospel of John a gospel so filled with truth. Now listen to this. This is what Martin Luther, hundreds of years ago, said about it. He said this. This is amazing. Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the Epistle to the Romans and the Gospel according to John escape them, Christianity would be saved. Do you see what John is saying, or what uh, Martin Luther is saying? This Gospel of John is so critical. It is so important because it proves that Jesus is the Christ. 
So he's going to open up with a statement. It's going to sweep Jewish minds, Greek minds, all together into its force, into its grip. In the beginning, look at it again, was the Word. Now, pretend you're Jewish. For most of us, that's an imaginary thing, because you're not Jewish. Some here might be, but pretend for a moment that you're Jewish, and you heard or you read this from John, likely you would have heard it, because they were not all able to read or have access to this, so you're probably hearing this in the church. And you hear, in the beginning was a word, and all of a sudden, I'm going to tell you Jewish people, make believe, where your mind's going to immediately go, it's going to go back all the way to Genesis 1, where ten times it's repeated, and God said, one after another after another. And it's going to go a little bit wider to the entire Old Testament, because the Jewish mind over and over kept hearing the prophets say, the word of God commands us to do this. Or the word of God came to Israel. So all of a sudden, your mind is going back to the power, the beauty, the incredible privilege that Israel had to have the Word of God. But John, by the way, actually had more Greek people, those are Gentiles, non-Jewish people, he had more Greek people in his audience than he did Jewish people. And so he's now sweeping them up as well by his use of the word, word. Now look again at verse 1. You're going to see this over and over. I've got to explain it to you. In the Greek language, the Greek word is logos. Now I don't normally pronounce the Hebrew and Greek words for you, but I am on this one uh, because you're going to hear this a little bit, I think, in your mind because it's not an unfamiliar word, logos. And this was an extremely famous word in the history of the Greek philosophy and theology. Now listen, have you ever heard this saying? I think, I think most of us have. Here's the saying. It's very famous. It's still around. You can never step twice into the same river. You might have heard this version. You can never step into the same river twice. That's a famous saying by Heraclitus, who is a Greek philosopher. And the reason that he said this statement is this this world is constantly changing it's never exactly the same so heraclitus began to try to understand well if all of this change is constantly around us by the way look in the mirror and you see that right look at the seasons you see that look at your relationships you see that if all of this change is constantly happening then how can there be order? How can there be design in the created world? So Heraclitus said that the answer to that, what puts order, what is design in a constantly changing world, is the Logos. He's the one that came up with this. Now, this is sweeping through the Greek mind. They loved oratory. They loved philosophy. They loved really brainy people. But all of a sudden, a guy comes along that you know even a little bit better. His name is Plato. He comes along in the 4th century. He's a Greek philosopher. He said this, quote, It may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, or logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. This is Plato that said this 4 centuries before Christ. 
Now, I'm not making it up. This is a direct quote from him. So the Logos is that which brings intelligent and spoken design and order into a constantly changing creation. And Plato said it might happen that this Logos might actually come to us and make everything plain. So here's John. By the way, I think John had to be one of the brainier of the apostles. He is just brilliant. He combines both Heraclitus and Plato, and he personifies the Logos in Jesus. And here we go, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, that's Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, are you getting bored yet? Don't shake your head, that hurts my feelings. But if you're getting bored, well, let me kind of jumpstart your mind again. Let's get it in tune and in step with where I'm going. John's going to prove that Jesus is the anointed one sent by God to reveal and make plain all things. He's going to prove he is the Logos. And to a Jewish and a Greek mind, this is going to explode. This is going to detonate with incredible significance for them. So he answers the question, how did creation come into being? John's answer is by the word. I mean, just look at it. Christian, please, you've got to gain confidence. This is not an accidental explosion of raw materials by which, of course, they can't ever explain how did the raw materials come into existence. This is a design And the creator is Logos. His name is the word to John. He's going to prove that it was Jesus. So listen, you want to know who created, who brought everything into being from nothing? Latin ex nihilo, who it is, is Jesus. Look what he says. All things, verse 3, were made through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. So the one who created everything out of nothing was Jesus. Jesus. It's by his word. He spoke it into existence. You know, one of the earliest heretics in the early church was a guy named Arius, not Ares from Wonder Woman, God of War. Arius, he's a heretic. He was in the early church. He taught that Jesus, though godlike in many ways, was actually less than God, that Jesus was a created being. What it is, basically, is Gnosticism. This was a heresy that was already coming into the first century. John was the last of the apostles to die. He was alive when Gnosticism began to rear its ugly head. It's an evil spawn of Greek philosophy. And so, all of a sudden, John is combating Gnosticism. But Arius is Gnostic. He believes that Jesus was a created being. Dan Brown, in his bestseller, The Da Vinci Code, if you've read that, he echoes liberal New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman in arguing that Christians never, now listen, this is what, da Vinci, this is what uh, Dan Brown says, that Christians never considered Jesus to be God until the 4th century. That's actually woven into his book. See, John sees this heresy coming. And so verse 1 is undeniably, unmistakably clear. The Word, Jesus, who is the Logos, was with God, and the Word was God. You might as well just put an equal sign. 
Put it into a mathematical equation. Jesus equals God. And he underscored, John did, Christ's eternal existence. Look at verse 2. I know this might be a little boring, but come on, let's hang in there. This is so critically important. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. So when the beginning began, when creation came in, Jesus already was. you got to get that preposition. He, it's not that he came into being. He was already in existence. See, John is arguing this. He's proving that Christ is the anointed one, that Christ is God. But i got to tell you something beautiful about that word with. It's just a preposition, right? We think, oh, it's no big deal. Your, your mind just skips right over it. In the beginning, the word was God, and the word was with God. It says it twice. Look at your passage. Twice, the word with. Now, men, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this in a way that you and I will definitely understand this. In fact, I'll give you a little homework. You ready? In fact, for immediate application, let me just ask you, do this tonight. Do this right after church. Take your lovely person of interest, your wife or your girlfriend, take them out on a date, and I want, what I want you to do is I don't want you to ever even look at them. I want you to, if there's a TV available, I want you to watch the TV, okay? And when they speak to you, I want you to give monosyllabic answers like, huh, or yes, or just forget even vocalization, just nod your head. Now, you are going to be punished severely by your loved one. You are going to be on the couch if you're married. You're probably going to be reconsidered as your, their boyfriend if you're dating. But I'm going to tell you that the word with is the exact opposite of everything I just told you to do. It means eternally facing. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of intimacy. Now, how do you get that out of the word with? It's the Greek word. And it's incredibly powerful. It means to always be toward the other. So now look at me. What John is saying is that the word, who is Jesus, he's the Logos. Heraclitus and Plato talked about him. He he's personified in the person of Jesus. Jesus has eternally been toward the Father. They have been in unbroken intimacy for eternity. See, he's not only the order in all creation, but he's also the source of life, which is the second point that John brings. Jesus, the life. The first one was Jesus, the word. This one is Jesus, the life. Now, it tells us a great deal of one of John's major themes in his gospel when we learn that the word life, it occurs 36 times. Write that down if you would. The word life, 36 times in the gospel of John. That's a huge, huge signal for us. That's a major theme. You should have little red lights going on in your mind. Life. In him was life, verse 4, John 1, 4. And the life was the light of men. He's already stated, he's already told us that all things were made through Christ, that Jesus, the word, the logos, is the source of all physical and biological life. But look at verse 4. Now he's telling us that Jesus is the source of all spiritual life. He not only gives those who believe in him new life, he awakens them to the wonder of life. Now listen, you might be somebody that before Jesus saved you, you were sort of just drifting through life. 
things really didn't excite you that much. Well, one of the main reasons is because your compass needle was on you. But when Jesus saves you, he shifts the needle. So all of a sudden, you love the Lord your God and your neighbor is yourself. And all of a sudden, when you love people more than yourself, when you love God more than you love anybody else, all of a sudden, the originator, the giver of life, Jesus, the word, the logos, all of a sudden, he makes you alive. He sensitizes your heart. Now, you've heard about Charles Darwin, right? You know, the father of the theory of evolution. What school textbooks will not tell you, but what unbiased biographers of his will, is that when he grew older, now this is true, Charles Darwin mourned that he can no longer enjoy poetry and music and art. He stated this. He says, they hold no wonder for me. They hold no joy for me anymore. Life for Darwin lost color, it lost satisfaction, he lived without any kind of joy. Now, the reason being, now listen, he had followed the Logos, now listen, design and order, he followed Logos back and mistakenly concluded that all life was a series of random and accidental choices. And the only logical conclusion of living in an accidental, random world is that you have no purpose. You cannot have purpose if you're an accident, if you're a random statistic. See, Jesus, the Logos, he's the giver of life. He awakens our souls to purpose and beauty through the new birth of Christianity. Now, I'm going to take you forward to chapter 3 for a moment in the Gospel of John. Because John, all of a sudden, is going to quote a sermon from John the Baptist. I don't know if you ever caught that before in chapter 3. It's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. He's actually going to give an excerpt of a sermon. You want to know how John the Baptist preached? You want to know what the con content was? If you could just get a podcast by John the Baptist, well, here's what it would be if it was written up. Here's what he would say, at least an excerpt. In verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now that's John the Baptist, quintessential John. He's full of fire. He's full of conviction. He's full of desire. Come on, you've got to turn to Jesus. He's your only hope. See, Jesus, John is saying, the Baptist, came to give eternal life. Now, now watch this, because we, we messed this up. The opposite of eternal life, listen, is not eternal death. Right? I know that in your mind, it's like you're, you're doing a little bit of a flip-flop. That, that can't be true. The opposite of eternal life, it's not eternal death. According to John the Baptist, it's God's eternal wrath. That's really important to hold that distinction. Because dying apart from Christ is way worse than just dying for eternity. You're not blinked out of existence. Your soul is not extinguished. You will go to a place where you will receive the wrath of God. If you reject Jesus, you will go to that place where there is no light, there is only darkness, there is no presence of God. Now that's a, an incredibly terrible place to go. And John the Baptist wants to rescue you from that. The only rescue is Jesus. 
Now you go back to chapter 1. So far, John, the apostle, has shown that Jesus is the Logos, the Word, the Divine One, brings design, purpose to all creation, made everything, brings life into it. Then he declared, John the apostle, that Jesus is the one who gives life and with it beauty and joy. Now he's going to declare that Jesus is the light of the world. That's point number three, Jesus the light. By the way, let me give you a view to the end and then we'll continue on our journey, right? The view to the end is this. What you're going to hear from me at the end of this is what purpose does your life, Christian brother and sister, have? Back to John chapter 1. I'm going to give you that in a few minutes. Now I want you to remember my cycling evening that Tuesday before Christmas when those foggy, that fog was everywhere and that glow of festive lights emerges from the mist. I want you to, to think of that. Can you just picture that in your mind for a moment? Because this is really kind of the imagery that John's using. He's going to pull two threads, think cloth, that are woven through the tapestry, literally, of the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. These two threads are everywhere. Here they are, light and darkness. Think Genesis 1, think all the way at the end of Revelation. And they're everywhere, and the Bible really focuses in, in the book of Isaiah and supremely focusing in the Gospel of John, which is why it's our Advent series title. He's going to pull these threads, and here, verse 5, he begins. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, what on earth does that mean? You ready? This is super simple. Hopefully, you'll never forget this. Light simply is moral understanding. Or better put, it's the ability to know God and to make Him known. Light is the aha moment when the Spirit clicks your soul on. And all of a sudden, you can see God differently than you ever were able to see Him before. Light is moral understanding, the ability to know God and see spiritually. And the Apostle John argues that Jesus is the true light. He's not only the Word, the Logos, he's not only the giver of life, he is the true light, verse 9. Why? Because he knows God the Father. They've been eternally with one another, facing one another. He is seen with his eyes who the Father is, and he came to make him known to us. But there is darkness, that other thread. And darkness refers to the moral inability to know and to love God. It opposes God. It opposes you, Christian. It inundates this world system. John says, literally, the light will shine, still shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never put it out. That's really what he's saying in verse 5. It cannot. Now, think for a second. This is going to be super obvious. I want you to just imagine one time recently, I don't know, a bedroom, maybe a closet, because closets usually have no windows, so it's really, really dark. And you open that door of the closet and you click the light on, the light switch, ready? Now listen, here's what you did not see. Here's what you did not experience. There was, began a war between darkness and light. And you know what? The eventual outcome was in doubt. You didn't know which one was going to win. It got a little brighter, and then darkness kind of came back, got a second wind, and a contest, and a bat. Listen, you've never seen that happen. You will never see that happen. 
Light immediately dispels darkness. It is so infinitely more powerful. And here is the conquest ability of light. And John brings it out. The darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome the light. It is not even powerful enough. And all of a sudden, this glow of the approaching birth of Christ is seen as you progress through the Old Testament. Listen, start in, in, in Genesis. You're not going to really get too much of the scene of a birth of Jesus. But the more you progress through it, Revelation is given an increasing amount, and all of a sudden, it's starting to get really, really clear. Something big is going to happen. God is going to do something. This is why Plato picked it up. Maybe, God, maybe something will come from God that will make everything clear. He didn't understand because his mind was darkened, but he had enough truth to know something is coming. He's the Logos. The word, his name is Jesus. And he said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, a good friend in our church taught me how to hunt. And I am honestly an incredibly horrible hunter. So he must be a terrible teacher. And his name's Craig Davison, if you'd ever like to meet him. Not that I'm dropping names, but he was, when he was teaching me how to hunt, he always told me, Tim, you got to get down in the tree stand before the sun comes up. Don't get down there when it's just coming up. You got to get down there before the sun is up. So in verse 6, this imagery of getting down there before the sun is up. Here we go. John the Baptist is telling people, verse 6, the light's about to shine. You better get ready. It's about to peak up over the horizon of redemptive history. And here's what he says. There came a man who was sent from God. His name is John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. That's what he's saying. You got to get ready. I can see the glow. Can't quite see the sun yet. I'm going to point them out to you in a moment, but the glow is there. You better make yourself ready and repent. And he has a name, and his name is Jesus. Now, you remember, John the Apostle, the purpose of this gospel is to prove beyond a, beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. So he uses this word witness, which is a legal invitation into a courtroom to be able to testify to the truth. And so he brings in, now listen, 29 times the word witness in the Gospel of John. You better write that one down. This is a major, major theme. 29 times. And he uses eight different witnesses. I don't have time to give you all eight of them. John the Baptist is one of them. The Heavenly Father is another. The Spirit of God is a, is a third. He's got eight of them. But the first, the very first witness that is called into the courtroom is John the Baptist, whom the Jewish people, by the way, listen, the Jewish people were wondering, is John the Baptist the Messiah? They're like coming out to the 
other side of the Jordan River where there's nothing. They're making this big trip out to see John the Baptist. This is the Messiah. we got to go investigate. This might be the one that's going to bring God to earth. This is the one that's going to deliver us. Look at verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. He came to Israel. And his own people, the Jewish people, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yes, John the Baptist was sent, it says it. Not as a Messiah, he was sent as a witness to the true light. And I'm going to give you a little Easter egg. You know what an Easter egg is? In modern cinematography language, an Easter egg is a little thing they embed in a movie that usually happens so quickly you don't notice it until everybody starts vlogging about it, all right? So Easter egg, here we go. You and I, Christian brother and sister, had the exact same mission as John the Baptist. So all of a sudden, John the Baptist sent to the world as a witness. He's not the light. He's the one that points to the light. There's no difference for you. There's no difference for me. And this is the season where that mission is galvanized. And I'm going to end in a few minutes by telling you exactly what it can look like. See, Jesus, the light, enables us to see that we are helplessly guilty of sin. I don't know anybody that likes to admit that. Not before Jesus, at least. Not before salvation. I honestly don't know anybody, and I've asked a bunch in my career as a pastor, have you ever sinned? I've never had a no given to that. Not by any unsaved person ever. Everybody knows they sin. Because everybody, to some degree, feels guilt. Even if you violate your conscience, Romans says, that's sin. And Jesus, that light, listen, he is the x-ray machine. He is the flashlight that shines on your soul. And all of a sudden, you're kind of dotted with spiritual cancer. You've got all kinds of tumors growing in you that are moral, moral decay. That's what sin is. But God's mercy was available. Now listen, when Jesus shined the light, he didn't just show you you're a sinner. Now listen, you've got to look at me for a moment. This is so critical. Please don't leave without this. That light goes vertical. And that light doesn't show the angry scowl of the Heavenly Father for you. It shows the willing, loving face of mercy for you. And so at the same time, it shows you you're sinning, while at the other time, it's going upwards and it's showing God has his hand out. God has an invitation to you. God says, listen, I want you to be in my family. It's by my will. I'm the one that chose to adopt you. It's by my will, not your will. You have no ability to choose me until I do something in your heart, which the Bible calls regeneration. That's why it's by the will of God. God decides, I'm going to save you. Why? Because I love you. And he does something in you and he did something in me that enables me now to say, I want to be saved. And now I see I'm savable. 
And I can see the pleasure on your face in saving me. You know, it's estimated by A.D. 60, roughly 30 years after Jesus was crucified, there were 100,000 Gentile believers for every one Jewish believer. This is how powerful this gospel is. This is how powerful Christ, Jesus the Christ is. And though this world opposes him, the will of God is sovereign. It remains supreme. Listen, there is no one that can hold back the hand of God. No one. You better bank on that because of God's sovereignty is all-inclusive. His, all of his attributes are swept into his sovereignty. And he gives believing Christians the right to become his children and he adopts, his, adopts them into his family and he seals them and he lives with them forever. And this is the great and final fourth point that we're going to look at. Jesus, the glory of God. You know, here's what's so cool about the birth announcement of the, in the Gospel of John. Matthew, his Gospel, took 25 verses to tell about the birth of Christ. Luke He's a little more wordy. He took 34. He's very educated. He was a doctor. John, man, he's brilliant. You know, how, you know how you know you're brilliant? Listen, not when you can wax eloquent for hours, seemingly pouring out knowledge. Listen, that's not brilliant. I'm going to tell you the most brilliant people I've ever heard of, which obviously I am not one of because my long sermons, they could take massive truth and bring it down into one statement. That's brilliant. And John is brilliant. Here's his birth announcement. And the word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Their own emperor of the Greeks, of the Romans, Marcus Aurelius, said, I'm going to explain this, the composition of the whole body is corruption. Do you know what he's saying Listen, this is the Greek mindset towards our bodies. They are evil. They are full of decay. They are tombs of corruption for the soul. They shackle your spirit. And it's best to just get rid of it. That's how the Greeks viewed the body. So when John says that God came to earth and took upon himself flesh, that was unthinkable to the Greek. They would never have thought that the Logos, Plato, that would ever be sent by God to take on flesh. Never. It just didn't happen to the Greek mind. But that's exactly what happened. And the Jewish mind would have been staggered by this. Do you know why? Because the, I'm going to tell you the greatest desire of the Jewish people. You ready? It was that God's presence would be among them. That was their greatest desire all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, even to today. It's their greatest desire. And John's saying, it's happened. God has come to dwell with us, and he took on flesh, and his name is Jesus. This is an amazing, amazing birth announcement. And John would have known. Look what he says about the glory of Jesus. Glory, the, the favor, the, the fame, the accolades. 
It just literally means doxa in the Greek. It just, you, know, you know how they have doxa lights, scuba divers? They give that glow in the depths of the darkness. That's what it means. That's where it came from. Glory is doxa. It's the radiance of God seen in the face in the person of Jesus. He is the glory of God. He is the radiance of God. And John would know. John's the guy that was on the mountain when the flesh of Jesus couldn't contain the glory of God for a while. And there was a glow everywhere. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. John would know. He's the one that was leaning back against the chest of Jesus during that Last Supper. He had a close, intimate relationship with Jesus. And he's telling everybody, listen, trust me, God has come. The Logos is here. The one that's brought design in order and created life. He is here. He is in the person, Jesus. And Jesus died for you. You want life? You put your faith in him. So what is our response, finally? We're witnesses to everything that John just wrote. Because Christian, you may not even know it, you know this. You may not realize that's how I should have said it, but you know this. You know who the giver of life is. You know who the light of the world is. You know who has the glory of God. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he puts our mission, our response this way. I don't think I could do it any better than him, so that's why I'm reading it. We are meant to talk to people about Jesus. And to tell them he is the son of God and that he has come into this world in order to save. We are meant to tell exactly why the world is as it is. It's not that great of a place right now. And we are meant to tell them about sin in the human heart and that nobody and nothing can deal with that sin save the son of God. So what should we be bearing witness about? And this is how I'm going to end. So can you look at me for a moment? you won't see it on the screen. Here's what we bear witness about. Jesus created everything. He is the Logos. He is the one that gives your life purpose and meaning and design, even when it feels like life is out of control. He's the Logos that brings it back in control. And you testify that he has given you a new heart full of eternal life. And you can see beauty in people where the world sees none. And you can see hope in situations where the world has despair. And you've got joy where the world has misery. It's all because Jesus gave you life. And that life is more than just eternal longevity. It is abundance even now. And you testify that he has opened your sin-darkened mind to believe because it's his will. And that you can see now your need for mercy and you can see his willing sacrifice to forgive you. And you want to tell everybody else how they can have the same. And it's to testify that Jesus is the radiant glory of God. And he is full of grace. He is full of truth. They always go together in Jesus. He's never graciously untrue. And he's never truthfully ungracious. They go perfectly together in the person of Jesus. And for anyone who receive him by faith, you will explode with understanding of just how graciously true he is. See, this is our message to the world. This is the message John says, go out and bear witness. And this is what he's doing. And you know what's going to happen? 
You will have the power of God to prove to all of your unbelieving people that Jesus is the Christ, that they might turn to him and be saved. Amen? Let's do that in this Advent series, this Advent season. Get out there and tell people about Jesus. Let me pray.